Hello, this is Media Files, a podcast about the major themes and issues in the media. I'm Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. And I'm Matthew Ricketson from Deakin University. News, News Corporation, so we're talking about the Australian Daily Telegraph, 2GB in Sydney, led by Alan Jones and Ray Hadley, and Sky News in particular, with its evening lineup, are waging a war against the Prime Minister of Australia. And that was Chris Yulman, political editor for the Nine Television Network, calling out the media for overstepping the bounds of their role during the recent ousting of federal Liberal leader, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And as the by-election looms for his vacated seat in Wentworth, we're reflecting on how digital disruption is showing up in the world of journalism and politics. Where do you have a public conversation? Where is the public square for that conversation? Because there are so many different filter bubbles, there's no agreed facts, there's systems that reward shouty voices and simple solutions. We are losing the capacity to build a cohesion or to build a consensus. That's former Federal MP David Feeney, who found himself the subject of national headlines on several occasions, first when he failed to declare a property on the Parliamentary Register during the 2016 election campaign, and then in the dual citizenship debacle that ultimately cost him his parliamentary career earlier this year. Well, here is analysis of the media in a bit. But first, Catherine Murphy, the political editor for Guardian Australia. It's easy to miss how disorienting it can be to work in the always-on-at-fire-hydrant-strength world of political journalism these days, as Murphy recounts in her recently published essay book on disruption. Thank you very much, Catherine Murphy, uh, political editor of Guardian Australia, for agreeing to be interviewed for the um, Media Files podcast for the conversation. I want to drop you straight into your book, your short book, which you've just done on disruption. I'm just going to read a little uh, section of it where you talk about feeling physically ill Mm -hmm. at a certain point in the federal election campaign and describe the need to kind of literally physically get out of the building you were working in and go and walk around and walk up a hill in Canberra to kind of breathe. Just want, tell me what that was about and why at this point in the life of a journalist, an experienced journalist, you had that feeling. There was no one yelling and screaming at you, no nope. editors, you know, jumping on your windpipe or anything like that. But this is the state of physical being that you were in at that point. Well, I think it's sort of it's important for readers to understand uh, understand human reactions to things, in essence. And to be a journalist at the moment, at least the sort of journalism that I practice, it's uh, it requires a deep level of saturation, and you are literally bombarded with inputs all day, every day. Information comes at all of us. Readers, consumers of news will understand that if they're in any way connected to a news cycle, that it comes at people with the speed of a fire hose. And at a certain point in time, uh, you have to step out of that. You have to step out of that that sort of ferocity of information and inputs. Otherwise, you're no use to anyone. Otherwise, you literally do start to shut down because you just can't process that level of information. Okay. So journalism has always been a busy job. It's always, you know, it's deadline driven and, you know, we're all familiar with that. What's changed in, say, now compared to 15 years ago? Because it never stops. Mm-hmm. Because it never, and that's a function of uh, of the of technological disruption as much as anything else. 
there were in at least in the, the sort of journalism that I practice, which is the old the artists formerly known as print. <laughs> Uh, there, there was a cycle to the day of print. Uh, there was a sort of defined uh, time frame where information was gathered and information was shared, and that was a fairly orderly process that that sort of iterated every twenty four hours. You basically uh, started, uh, you gathered information in a great rush, then collated and filed the information at the end of the day, and then. There was a hard cutoff because information couldn't be shared after a certain point. Deadlines are hard deadlines and then one went home and then came back in the next day and started all over again. What the internet did was remove all of the boundaries and all of the cutoffs. So now information literally flows through open channels 24-7. It doesn't stop. And uh, now because of consumer preferences, a lot of that information is shared instantly. The, 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 the audience knows about it at the same time as the journalist does. So that's, that didn't happen during the print era. Uh, when the internet arrived and disrupted the, the, the print cycle, we got into a, a, a habit, again, audience-driven, of sharing information almost as it arrived, which is partly social media and partly because now there's an internet news cycle, which is quite different. So that's the main difference. The technology is the difference. The technology has created these open channels where information pulses at all times of the day and the night, whereas in the print era, it was more defined when things happened and when things were shared. And what effect do you think that is having on, we've touched briefly on what effect it might have on you as a journalist, as a physical human being, but um, what effect is it having on the way in which news and information goes out and then on the kind of discourse more broadly that is happening in society? Well, it's sort of, it's certainly, I, I can only talk about the journalism that I've practised for just over 20 years, which is political journalism. When we When we cover political events live now, they take on some of the connotations and dynamics of a sporting match, which mm-hmm. has always been covered live. Mm-hmm. If you want to watch your footy match, you've turned on the telly as long as I've been alive and, and watched it happen blow by blow. Now we're covering politicians or political events, big political events in the same way, where we're literally bringing them to you blow by blow. So it changes, that, that sort of coverage uh, creates something of a spectacle atmosphere about what is being covered, even if you try very hard to not breathlessly report Mm. it as spectacle, the dynamic is spectacle. A crowd gathers to watch watch a live event. A fight or whatever it might be. Whatever Mm. it might be. Mm. So some of that uh, that sort of dynamic then infects the reporting and, and also affects the way people consume it and respond to it. So then you get an audience response that is not unlike an audience response at a football match. Which is holding the ball, holding the man, well, you know, whatever, your team's getting all the free kicks, Exactly, exactly. People are, people are participating and the internet allows them to participate. The internet allows them to chime in on social media and have views and, and interact directly with journalists, another mm. function of technological change. Mm. So... It, that's that has changed the way uh, politics is reported reported in quite fundamental ways, and it's sort of a bit of the butterfly effect. When you change the way something's reported, you also change the thing in itself. And I think we have seen uh, a sort of parallel disruptions occur, both in 
political discourse and public discourse and journalism in the same time frame. Now, whether these two things are causal or mm. correlated. Well, that's one of the things that you mm. you know you start to discuss in your in your um, short book on disruption, and I think you quote Bernard Keane, the political editor of Crikey, to the effect that he, if I've got it right, he thinks that is happening. Yeah. Um, he's read some of the literature, the more academic literature, and it's and the case is not closed yet, as in it's not definitively proven, but the indications are that that there is a causal relationship between the the speeding up of the news cycle as you've just been describing it, and and the effect that that has on the political cycle. Yeah, and also society at large. You sort of, uh, you very generously opened this conversation by asking me about the impacts on me mm. as, as a practitioner. What's, mm. What is this like for me? My main concern is what is this like for audiences? Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think we see... We, everything, you know, human beings are contradictory, aren't we? I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's who we are, it's what makes us interesting. Mm. But there's, we see two dynamics. We see this enormous desire to know things when they happen mm. and not a patience to step back and wait for a nice clean report in 12 hours time, but give it to me while it's happening. Yep. So we see this great appetite because audience, audiences are huge. Audience numbers are large for live events. But also I think we see fatigue, disillusionment, oversaturation, cynicism, uh, a certain shutting down too on the part of audiences. And I think it's, it's, it's a bit like audiences have a similar response sometimes to me on my Canberra hilltop where literally too much is coming at you too fast, it's overwhelming, and you need to step out of it for a period of time. And I think one of the sort of really interesting trends or things that we ha- we as pr- practitioners have to watch for in the digital environment is audience fatigue. Okay. And we haven't even yet mentioned the events of two weeks ago when the, you know, when the, 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 the prime ministership of the country changed yet again. And I was trying to deliberately hold that back for a moment. Um, but okay, you've you've now covered all of the changes, every, every of one. all of all of them, and you know, in your <laughs> <Uh-oh>. um, <laughs> what um, have a stab at what what how how interconnected the change in the kind of what we're calling the media cycle and the change in the political cycle is um, now that you've covered all four of these. We don't need to go into all the nuances of the different you know of the different leadership changeovers, but Okay, what what are you thinking at this point in early September two thousand and eighteen? I think the I think these two things are definitely connected. I mm. have no evidence of a scientific nature to be able to share with you, but my own lived experience is that these two dynamics are connected. They are they do meet up somewhere along the line. We have the way we're reporting things does influence how politics is being practiced. And and also, frankly, vice versa because mm. politics is evolving to our forms as well and knows how to use our forms. And, uh, what, you know, what, that, give us an example of that. What well, do you mean by that? amplification effects. Donald Trump is the, mm. you know, is the master of uh, using the cacophonous digital media environment as an amplification tool rather than a tool of accountability. And that's one of the biggest challenges we face is that we can be we can be captured, we can be made hostage of these processes and be used as amplification tools rather than accountability tools. But in terms of leadership, which is what you ask me, I think 
I don't know that it's a, it's a function of the media environment why we've seen these successive leadership coups, uh, although they are connected. I think what's starting to have an impact cumulatively, if you're asking me about my assessment of the cycle mm. of this over a decade, is uh, is that um, it gets back to that human politics journalists people are humans mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. which is often overlooked, and. In a piece I wrote for Mianjin a year ago, yeah. uh, Mianjin Corley a year ago, I wanted to really go as deeply as I could into into the why of political dysfunction. We chat people like you and me in rooms like this on this podcast all the time about Small, how... Small, airless and quite warm rooms <laughs> as it happens. <laughs> oh, I've been in worse. Um you know, we, we talk a, we talk a lot about this again as an as an abstract concept, yep. right? Politics yep. is not what it should be or what it yep. was or all of these things. I think as reporters, we've not done enough to interrogate the why of that. So what I sought to do in this very modest piece was to try and explain to people outside of politics what the life of a parliamentarian is like in okay. the, in yep. the contemporary age, not as some apologia on their behalf, but just explain the life and explain the dynamics in the life. And in that piece, uh, a a Liberal MP by the name of Mal Washer said something really acute Mm. to me that really sat me on my backside and made me think about this in much more profound ways than I had previously. Mm -hmm. And what he said was, and this was now, this was two, maybe three leadership changes fewer than where we've been now, yeah. right? So it's, his observations were, uh, were sort of only up until a point. But anyway, he said, what's happened as a consequence of the coup culture in Canberra is that cor- the, the Labor caucus room and the coalition party room are no longer safe havens for their inhabitants, They've become places of conflict and contention. And uh, people have split into groups, into warring groups. And what happens, because Mal Washer, if, if people listening are unfamiliar with Mal, is, mm. is a general practitioner. That's and right. I, and I spoke to him because he is literally a clinical observer as, of, mm. of a group of people. Uh, and Mal's view was that as a consequence of that distrust permeating the safe zone of politics, which was the caucus and the party rooms, that MPs are now living in a near permanent state of fight or flight, Mm. that their adrenaline levels are raised constantly uh, and that creates, sort of ingrains a culture of conflict. And when people don't trust one another, people stop communicating with one another in in useful fashion. Mm. Mm. So if he thought that was a phenomenon about three leadership cycles ago, and again, it was something I'd never thought of, just that basic concept, the politics as the politician as a human. Yes. Right? I know there's a whole lot of cynicism about politicians and that they bear no resemblance to human beings, et cetera, et cetera. I I know a number of them. I can can testify that they are humans. Yeah, that's right. Well, and they... And even if they end up being less human than they might be or might want to be, they began that way. Well, they began that way and they have human responses yeah. to to yeah. being in extremis, yeah. as all humans do. Yeah. And this crowd, institutionally, are acting like a mob of people in extremis a lot of the time. And that explains uh, the, the, the ready resort to combat, um, superficial, quick 
decision-making, panicked decision-making at times, uh, the lack of collaboration, the, uh, the rise of tribalism, you're either with me or against me. And this trauma, and I'll call it trauma mm. because that's what it is, is cumulative and it's cascading through our system. And I think in this leadership challenge, this one that we've just seen, which was an incredibly traumatic event mm. for people associated with it, uh, we have seen people for the first time talk about this event yes. in terms of trauma. And I think that actually could be a positive if we're looking around for genuine circuit breakers here. I'm not saying it won't happen again and the whole show is so unstable it's hard to see it cohering again. But for myself as an observer of this over a decade, yep. for I know how put it this way, I know how hard it was to get the three people who I spoke to for that Mianjin piece that I wrote to get on the record. Because? They, none of them wanted to talk. Because? Because it's against the grain of the culture. As in, you should, to use Alan Jones's phrase last night, spoonful of concrete and suck it up. toughen up. The culture yeah. is suck it up. You don't talk about the culture. Okay. You do not. That's It's sort of a, it's, you can face tribal banishment for talking about the culture. Or worse, you can be called a snowflake or a princess yeah, or whatever, whatever else. So none of those people wanted to talk. And I persuaded them to mm -hmm. talk because I thought it was an important story yep. to tell. And that's and it's had a lot of shelf life because it was an important story to tell. Indeed. So, What about the, um, speaking of tribal cultures, another one is the journalistic tribal culture. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's been, I mean, you're, you're one of the, Rel probably in, min in a minority, if I can say, of journalists who who reflects openly and honestly and at length about. I'm a self-hating journalist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's true. Um, about your about journalism and its practices and so on. But um, now, the, the interesting thing in this context for journalism, in the terms of the last coup, is that on the one hand, a former ABC journalist now working with Channel Nine, their political editor Chris Yulman called out what he perceived to be a problem in the way in which journalism was being done during the election, uh, during the leadership changeover, yep. to wit, journalists were becoming players rather than simply, even rather than simply opinion Easters. Um, but also then most other people who were asked about that issue basically said nothing to see here, as in most other journalists said, nothing to see here. I cannot think of another, uh, of a journalist, and I may have missed it, who reflected on their own organisation's culture and said anything, not even negative, but just critical, reflective about what had happened. Yeah. Um, so there were two, the, the two things were happening. You know, one, it was being called out in a pretty, in a strong way, in a very strong way. And, uh, and, and on the other hand, the other things that happen most of the time in the news media, which is the news media has a lot of difficulty discussing its own practices, was also happening. Yeah. What did you make of all of that? Well, I don't disagree with anything you've said. I think uh, without sort of getting too long-winded, I'm reading Judith Brett's biography at the moment of ah, Alfred yes, Deakin. Yes. And if you think about Deakin's relationship with David Syme, mm -hmm. you might think about uh, you might think about whether influence and all media characters trying to influence political events is a new phenomenon. Obviously, it <laughs> obviously it's it not. Ain't. It's not. Yeah. So we just need to say that, I sure. think, because what's happening at the moment is not a new thing. 
What gives me some cause for concern about what is happening at the moment is this, uh, again, and it's a function of the disruption that I talk about in the little book, there is this sense uh, where the media market is fragmenting mm-hmm. because uh, very organisations who are all organisations, commercial media organisations at the moment are obsessed with their own survival for good reasons. When the internet came, the internet smashed our business models. Yeah. There are good reasons to be existentially concerned with whether or not we live or die through this transition. So media organisations are chasing engaged audiences at this point, rather like politicians chasing rusted on tribal supporters, loyalists in a disrupted environment. Everybody is looking to have an emotional relationship with someone in the hope that they stick to the product. So we see media organisations chasing engaged audiences. The way to engage people is through emotion, not through reason. Uh, you see some media outlets appealing to their supporters through an, an emo- through this sort of emotive campaign style hydrochloric acid bath (laughs) type commentary, right? Riles people up, makes people engage, makes people stick. And there is also a function of the current media environment, again, that is related to technological disruption where it seems to me where people people are retreating into bubbles. Mm -hmm. People are retreating into conversations that reinforce their predispositions. There seems to me to be less of a market out there in the world, in the zeitgeist, for an open-ended conversation that could end up anywhere. There seems to be, in media culture, a self-reinforcing bubble enclave culture. And what happens with that is that even when audiences are small, like, you know, Chris talked about Sky News at night, for yes, example. Yes, very or, small audience. Mm. You know, uh, or GB, which is 2GB in Sydney, which is a much larger audience. But but these a number of these commentators who were active in the leadership uh, spill this time against Turnbull have very small audiences. But what happens if you speak to uh, government parliamentarians? What are the consequences of a Peter Cradlin editorialising every night or an Alan Jones in the morning or... What are the consequences of that? They will tell you that they get a, a stampede of correspondence from branch members in their home bases. You know, why do you support that communist traitor? Why are you supporting this unfathomable energy policy that Malcolm Turnbull is promulgating? So these feedback loops get created where individual parliamentarians are under pressure from their base, from their branch members, Mm. right? Not voters. Voters don't get a look in here. Mm. This is an already unrepresentative group Mm. of people Mm. who are maintaining maintaining partisan loyalty in a time where partisan loyalty is fast becoming an anachronism. Mm. So these feedback loops develop basically where MPs are under pressure from people in their branch, people who determine their pre-selections, people who raise money for them, people who hand out how to vote cards for them at election times. Why are you supporting the communist? And this starts to rattle around the place and gather a a momentum and a life of its own. Now, that is not about voter pressure. That is about influencing... It probably doesn't help that that Sky News is on throughout Parliament House itself, isn't it? Like, And in every Qantas lounge that you go into, and, of course, all of the politicians regularly travel during the, the you know, to and from their home state. So they're, it's turned on in those lounges. So they're, they're kind of, 
in a, a, a deeper or broader extended feedback loop than, than they're not that, – that's what they're seeing a lot of the time. They're not necessarily seeing other people or other no, well, sources. I think that's that that's an issue. I think uh, parliamentarians, um, even though they're, they're not doing a brilliant job as a collective right at the moment, are pretty smart people. And mm. I think they understand intrinsically watching this small cable show is not representative of the real world. Mm. But – in this sort of environment Febrile of environment. Mm. bombardment, this sort of closed loop mm. environment, it's a constant dripping tap on well, their head, sort of, mm. Mm. yeah. Then it's, of course, it can influence things. And I think the thing I was talking actually to a, a, a friend of mine who's been mm. involved in politics for quite a long time, uh, and a, a backroom type, um, and he said to me. Uh, a week or so ago when we were having this conversation, the, the, the sort of most dangerous thing in politics is the moment, at the moment is that politicians are bombarded with false signals. They are, there's so much coming at them that is not actually representative of what the voters are thinking, but it nonetheless is sort of right in their face that it's hard for them to get clear air. This friend of mine joked that it would be fantastic if we could um, de- develop a device. You know when rock stars in anthem in stadiums have those earplugs in, right? Mm. So they can hear how their music is playing, playing out in out the, the audience, mm. right? That's what gets folded back into their ears because mm. on stage yeah, it's, it's so just, noisy yeah. and hollowy and mm. they can't hear themselves properly. They can't hear what they're saying. So they get the audience played back through their ears. My mate said to me, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with a technological device so that we could remove all the false feedback loops standing in front of politicians and they could just hear the audience. They could just hear the voters rather than all the blockages between them and the voters. And it's inspired. Like, I don't know, we're sitting in a university at the moment, Matthew, I don't know whether there's <laughs> any engineers listening who might be able to come to our aid. But, I mean, it's, it's, look, it's just a conceptual thing. But I thought it was a nice description, mm. actually. Mm. And a nice way of distilling the imperative that we've got at the moment, which is somehow to get the false the false signals out of the way and get politicians closer to the people they're representing. And final question on the journalism. Um, leaving aside the business model question, which, as you say, is an existential threat, but yep. beyond the wit of you and I to solve right here and now. Sadly, um, yep. In terms of the practice of journalism, what, 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 if any, kind of cause for optimism is there at the moment? Oh man! <laughs> you mean you mean about our survival? Do you yeah, think we'll yeah, survive? Yeah, like, are you a glass half full oh, or a glass half empty um, person on yeah, this? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I did think uh, at the beginning of digital, the beginning of uh, the disruption. Even though I was an enthusiast for it, I mean, I'm Irish. I can't help it. I have these I have these issues. Um, but I did think at the beginning of the disruption uh, that there wouldn't be a very long tail. I thought that we would be taken out pretty quickly. Okay. If I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. I thought that it would be short, sharp and terrible. Mm. And the lived experience of it, though, is different. The, we're, we're still in quite difficult territory, both uh, professionally, mm. in a practice sense, and existentially via the business models. Mm. But the tail is proving significantly longer than I expected. Mm. We're, we're still in there. We're still, there's a fight to be had and we're still in there. And it's being and had, isn't it? It is being had. And pleasingly, our audiences, or a number of them at mm. least, are buckling in with us for the fight. 
Well, in and, and response to the Mianjin article, for example, which is now a year old, so we've got the distance of a year on it, that was one I saw that you reposted it and that you'd been getting quite a lot of people asking you about it and wanting to refer back to it. And there's something about that, that, that an article in a magazine a year ago, it sits, enough, it sits in enough people's minds either for them to reflect or to say to a friend, oh, I remember this article, you should read it or whatever. Yeah, well, that's that's obviously really pleasing and, mm. and also the discussion externally to politics as well as the discussion internally within mm. politics about that piece has been one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had yeah. professionally. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the general enterprise, look, there are a lot of people who loathe and detest mainstream media journalism. Mm-hmm and uh, take to every tools available to them in order to crusade to to against it. Fair enough. That is absolutely their right. Uh, but we, uh, we've also discovered, I think, through this process of disruption, that there is, an, there is a constituency for what we do, mm. that there are opportunities still to do good work, even in difficult circumstances, and opportunities to build communities around good work. And that's sort of not an exploitative relationship with an audience, which is where we touched on earlier, you know, this sort of generation of emotion in order to get people to connect. I just mean audiences that understand that, well, that can identify people who are trying to apply an honest trade, who are trying to do public interest journalism as best they can, and who are poning up for the exercise. So if you ask me what gives me hope... It's that. Okay. Thank you very much, Catherine Murphy. Thank you. That was Catherine Murphy, political editor for Guardian Australia, speaking with Professor Matthew Rickardson. This is Media Files, a podcast about the major themes and issues in the media. Today, we're talking about how politics and the media influence each other and how that's changing Australia and not necessarily for the better. One person who's seen that from the inside of the halls of power is former federal MP David Feeney, who sat down with Andrea Carson at his house, yes, that house, actually that brand new house, which explains the slightly echoey quality of the audio, in Melbourne recently. Uh, Well, I've always been very impressed by Chris Yorman as a journalist and commentator, and I thought that was a shining moment, really. It obviously brought into sharp focus some of the particular features of that particular contest and that particular fight that Turnbull was engaged in with a sort of a broad coalition to his right. Uh, I'm not sure it helps us understand the sort of more long-term and systemic challenges that I think the media in Australia and indeed the media uh, across the uh, liberal Western world confront. Well, Chris specifically singles out the Murdoch stable of journalists Mm -hmm. with the news after dark as he calls it and others have as well yes Uh, and you've said that you think there's some systemic problems Mm. what do you think they are Uh, well i guess i would start by remembering that terrific um old saying that uh, a politician complaining about the media is like a sailor complaining about the sea so i think rather than complaining what we need to do is try and assess how have the seas changed and to sort of prosecute that metaphor how have those changing seas driven or are continuing to drive different behaviors in our politics because i think it's a bit of chicken and egg um, I, I guess my hypothesis is that politicians uh, in western liberal democracies are very adaptive creatures they adapt to their environments 
and in environments that are fast changing, as I think these are, they are adapting. So what is happening to our media and what is happening to the seas that politicians sail? And my fear is that, and I think this is sort of where Chris was coming from too, is that those things that once drove political conversation and politicians to the centre, because that's where news organisations thought the most viewers were and that's where politicians thought the most votes were, um, those drivers are disappearing and changing and now the media are looking to, or I think increasingly looking to uh, find niche audiences um, and that promotes uh, partisan commentary and that promotes what I would describe as a sort of a, a more gladiatorial and perhaps a more banal political conversation. I think Chris's remarks kind of came from a deep-based sense that the centre of politics is losing media coverage and politicians. Have we lost something in terms of the objectivity that goes on in that process, that rather than uh, getting messages out for the public good, that there's also uh, a, a situation going on where the journalists have lost objectivity and are becoming um, political players themselves? I think a lot of that's true, but it, I don't think the media and uh, the journalists in the media are behaving that way out of malice. Journalists today like to wring their hands and declare that politics was much better in yesteryear, but this current generation of politicians are just dreadful and how awful the political conversation has become. I think journalists are becoming... Um, more partisan and more interested in the politics rather than in the policy because they themselves are sitting on top of um, business models that are under excruciating stress. Journalists, I think, are under increasing pressure to make themselves personalities so they can survive um, as value adders in a media system that is uh, starved for money. So uh, I think... The sort of digital disruption of media has driven the digital disruption of politics. Well, you make a really good point because in the 1980s, some newspapers didn't even carry bylines. Now we have journalists with bylines and have Twitter followers that far exceeds the number of copies sold of their masthead. Hmm. And in that way, you see the cultural power of some mastheads has declined while the personal capital of journalists has increased. Hmm. So there is some capital to be gained by journalists becoming personalities in their own right rather than just conduits of the organisations that they work for. Of course there is, most definitely, and that's why it's happening. But that engenders some other behaviours as well because once those journalists have become personalities, sort of pseudo-celebrities... Um, and once they've attained that status because not simply their analysis but because of their opinion and the way they articulate their opinions, then they are starting to become actors on the political stage, aren't they? And they're becoming insiders rather than um, outsiders reporting. And you've got to wonder where objectivity has gone. Now, of course, again, I make the point that I don't think these journalists are losing objectivity out of malice or poor practice. They're losing objectivity because the market doesn't reward objectivity anymore. I mean, I think the, the very word, the very term journalist is under pressure. To my mind, it's a bit like calling every politician a statesman or woman, calling every media figure a journalist, because plainly uh, a number of them are not journalists in the classic understanding of that sense. They're commentators and political actors. And some are sucked into that vortex, I think, almost despite their own 
backgrounds and training in this arms race to survive um, the digital disruption of our media. Noam Chomsky, of course, would argue that media and democracies are often owned by capitalists and therefore mm-hmm. serve capitalist interests and elites. Mm-hmm. And if we look at Rupert Murdoch as the obvious example of that, it was rumoured that he was here at the time of the last leadership spill. He's been known to call prime ministers to his residence mm. in New York. What do you think motivates him? Is he looking to exert political preference or is he doing this for economic gain? Well, obviously, any answer I give you will be speculation. I think, I mean, it's always interesting, isn't it, when we talk about a free media to say, what are they free of? Uh, They're free of the state. Um, They're not free of vested interests. And I think that's a a very interesting point to make when looking at um, the media in totalitarian and authoritarian countries. What what is Murdoch's interest? Well, obviously, it's fundamentally money. And I think um, his business model uh, ultimately came to reflect his own personal politics, which was increasingly conservative. That would be my judgment. He has, though, backed both sides of politics at various times. Well, he backed Gough Whitlam very famously in 1972. I'm not sure he's backed a Labor figure since. Tony Blair? Oh, okay, in the UK. Yes, quite right. But obviously a a, a conservative uh, figure and I think has promoted and encouraged um, that kind of thinking across his papers. And I mean, in in my own state of Victoria, the Herald Sun is a very dedicated campaigner against the Labor government. It makes no bones about that and it will spin every story um, to the detriment of the Labor Premier. That's kind of it. That's its self-declared task. And that just then becomes part of the political terrain that politicians operate on. They know, I mean, I don't need to read the Herald Sun tomorrow to know what it's going to say about the state Labor government. It's going to attack it. And equally, I don't need to read The Age to know that it's going to denounce right-wing politics and it's probably going to complain that the Labor Party is not left-wing enough. These things are kind of uh, become brand attributes for those mastheads as they try and manage a world where they've lost objectivity. Here's a difficult question to answer. How much influence does that have on voters? And I bring to mind in the 2016 election where there was much front page coverage coming from the Daily Telegraph against Bill Shorten as leader, things Mm. like Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. And yet Labor did very well in the Western Sydney seats and those marginal electorates around that area Mm. where the Daily Telegraph would sell very well. So does that tell us that these messages go out but voters don't pay attention to them? Or do they influence decision makers like the Australian has a small, relatively small readership, but it's read by those that yeah. do carry power? Great question. Uh, and I also am reminded of the last Victorian state election where both dailies um, editorialised against voting Labor and Labor won. I, I think your point's right. That is to say, I think the community is paying less and less attention to the editorial of its papers and those papers and other forms of media, I shouldn't just talk about papers, are becoming less and less influential in terms of how they influence wider opinion. But I think there are two other things going on. Uh, The first thing that's going on is that um, as our community increasingly moves into its own separate filter bubbles, um, they are then impervious or increasingly impervious um, to ideas and opinions and facts which are contrary to their own self-sustaining worldview and we need to remember that a great majority of those filter bubbles aren't concerned with politics at all and the other phenomena I think is that uh, politicians, journalists, others, a small, the, the political class if you will, are following these papers and these 
you know, sky at night and whatever else it might be, um, with kind of a forensic comb, watching every mention, every news item, every story as it flashes across our 24-hour news cycle like a meteor, often while most of the community are oblivious to it. And so there is kind of a frenzy amongst that political class uh, to which everyone else is often immune. And so that kind of then means that enormously influential papers and mastheads and television programs are enormously influential amongst a very small number of people. But in some ways, and I think Rupert Murdoch understands this with The Australian, that still pays dividends. And he's obviously made the assessment that, I mean, only 19,000 Victorians a day read The Australian, um, but they're 19,000 people who I would suggest are more likely than not to be deeply concerned about politics, public policy, public administration, major companies, major vested interests. So he's made a decision that that kind of AB audience is worth him losing money on the Australian. You've talked about digital disruption and in the time of Trump, fake news has entered our vocabularies. Of Mm. course, fake news has always been around. You only have to think of papers like The Truth that talked about alien landings and and the like. (laughs) Yeah, I'd forgotten about The Truth, yeah. Uh, But Donald Trump regularly accuses the news media of being fake news and studies suggest this sort of demonisation or weaponisation of those terminologies against the media has had a contagion effect in other countries, including in Australia. And a University of Canberra study this year showed that most Australians are worried about fake news. Mm. Do you think politicians have a responsibility not to abuse this term? I think the media hate this term because it brings into stark relief the lack of trust that the wider community have for them and their product and their utterances. And I think it was a very clever, if if instinctive, still very clever um, terminology um, used by Trump. Because uh, obviously by accusing his media critics Uh, of being fake news and thereby denigrating their every effort, he played into a widely held perception that the media is indeed a deeply partisan vested interest with its own games and its own interests. And so uh, by bringing that bias into the open and describing all of his critics as fake news, he found a catch-all phrase which I think he has used successfully to avoid scrutiny and answering questions that traditional presidents would have found themselves obliged to answer. It's very bad for our democracy, but of course it's a symptom of the fact that journalists share with politicians the honour of being entirely distrusted by the community. And so uh, Trump was able to find uh, an adversary that started out with the same um, level of (laughs) trust that he did. So uh, as for the contagion, I think there are two interesting aspects to it. The first is, I think the media do have a glass jaw. They really hate the term fake news because of this denigration, because of the fact that it's a catch-all phrase used to undermine the legitimacy of the media in our public discourse. They should, of course, hate it for those reasons, but that hatred doesn't usually then bring much reflection on how it is that that term came to be so effectively weaponised against them. But I think the second thing that is of particular interest to me is sort of industrial fake news um, as it's produced by... You're talking the massive China, Russia. Yeah, because I think what that tells us is that the state of the media and the behaviours that that engenders 
have been identified by authoritarian and totalitarian powers around the world as a genuine weakness for our polities. And the fact that a free press has turned into a weakness rather than a strength of our democracies is something that I think should cause us all some deep reflection. Why is it that in a recent global survey of optimism, the most optimistic people in the world were found to be Chinese? Well, because they only hear good news. That's part of the reason, I imagine. Um, and over here, we only ever hear bad news. You wouldn't know from reading the press that you know crime levels are falling or that you know, prosperity is up. Or, yeah, bad news sells, good news never does. That's an old cliche. But the sort of grinding, remorseless negativity of the media, creating a level playing field by dragging everything down, stands in contrast to authoritarian and totalitarian states who are now thinking to themselves, well, we can use these uh, channels and behaviours to further weaken our potential adversaries. And if Western liberal democracies are obsessed with you know, these internecine hatreds and identity politics and these things that divide our people from one another in a way that they're able to insulate themselves from by not having a free press. I think it's a fascinating area for future thought. That was former Federal MP David Feeney speaking with Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. Media Files is produced in association with The Conversation. You can subscribe on iTunes or Pocket Casts. Production is by Andy Hazel. I'm Andrea Carson. Thanks for listening.